it's kind of a lonely life when people think that you might be dangerous. You made a joke about the danger of it, but it's a very real thing for me. Every relationship I have with somebody, there's this question of hmm. how threatening or how dangerous is Andy? And I understand it and it's a valid question, but it really does completely transform the social narrative of meeting a new person when they find out who you are. Hello again. This is Discover More, a podcast for independent thinkers who appreciate the importance of nuances with mental health as a through line. My name is Benoit Kim, an Ivy League educated policymaker turned psychotherapist and a world-class interviewer, according to my mom, that is. What is the secret life of a CIA spy that the public does not know about? There are conversations that are few and far in between that makes me slightly nervous and having a public conversation with a spy from CIA is definitely one of them. Will I be on the CIA's watch list after? Stay tuned. Andrew Bustamante is a former CIA covert intelligence officer, U.S. Air Force combat veteran, and the founder of his multimedia company, Everyday Spy. Expect to learn about the secret life of a CIA spy, the unfair advantage of CIA training, how to self-assess like a pro, how people get brainwashed and the science behind it, practical CIA techniques for everyday folks, and much, much more. Welcome to Discover More. Andrew. Welcome to Discover More. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me here, man. And you know, you said something in that intro that that is so powerfully relevant that I want to make sure people, you know, we come back to it because you're the first person to call it out. It's kind of a lonely life when people think that you might be dangerous. You made a joke about the danger of it, but it's a very real thing for me. Every relationship I have with somebody, there's this question of hmm. how threatening or how dangerous is Andy? And I understand it and it's a valid question. But it really does completely transform the social narrative of meeting a new person when they find out who you are. We're on the same brave wind because my first question is actually about how internal reality externalizes. So we're very big on independent thinking. And I think truth seeking and independent thinking go hand to hand, especially in the current era of misinformation. And they require one to constantly upgrade their internal operating systems of beliefs and references. Andrew, how is your CIA training upgraded your independent thinking and beliefs since as you talked about, when what you perceive internally often manifests externally? It's a great question, man. And, and I want to say first that what CIA taught me is that truth seeking and independent thinking, they are cousins of each other, but they are not the same thing. Hmm. And most people I think don't take the time to reflect on that. They're not the same thing. Critical thinking or independent thinking really means you are thinking for yourself. You're challenging the social narratives, the constructs, the norms that you have been conditioned with, and you're coming to your own conclusions. That is oftentimes not the same thing as truth seeking, because truth seeking is seeking something that is determined to be the truth. Does that determination, does that definition of truth come from you? Or does that definition of truth come from some external lotus, right? Where is the truth coming from? And to your point about the world that we live in right now, if you want to find the truth, 
and you're already predisposed to thinking that some people do not tell the truth, then you might reject an entire information source simply because you think that it does not tell the truth instead of finding the elements of the truth that are in that information source. And I feel like that's what's led to a, a, bi, a polarized you know, US population ba base. It's what's led to incredible misinformation. And misinformation is just one of three types of information. Hmm. And misinformation, what people don't understand is misinformation is very rarely intentional. Misinformation by definition in the Intel world means mistaken oh. information. So somebody said something that they didn't realize wasn't true, or they said a conclusion that hasn't been fully completed, like there's not enough information. That's the true definition of misinformation versus disinformation, which is intentionally false, right? Dishonest information, or what's known as malinformation, which is malicious information, which is the truth couched in a negative way. Right. So there's three different types of information that we're all being flooded with all the time. But, you know, I've, I've gone already kind of over a cliff with how awesome that first question was. But the big thing that CIA did to kind of shape my independent thinking was, was helping me understand, even in myself, when I look for the truth, it's not the same thing as when I think independently. Hmm. And if that isn't valuable enough, they also taught me that the same thing persists in everybody you talk to. They're all on this playing fields that they don't even realize is a game. My favorite type of responses are the ones that shoot my brain to 14 different directions. <laughs> <laughs> so let me recollect. So I love what you said in terms of like everyone has operates their life based on their own beliefs. And I think to really strengthen our firewall psychologically, you have to stress test your ideas and yes. beliefs and references. So let's probe a little bit deeper. What are some of the things you learned to really stress test your ideas so you know that the truth that you perceive as mm. is actually truthful? It's a great point, right? Because stress testing, what we call vetting mm. in our world, right? In the Intel world, we call it vetting. Uh, and the pressure test, the boundary test, all of these different ideas that basically encapsulate the same idea. What, they what we were trained to do is understand that we have an internal bias. The first thing we're taught to do is understand that the brain is not your friend. Your <laughs> brain is not trustworthy. Uh -huh. My brain is not trustworthy. Everybody's brain is actually working against what they think it's there to do. The brain is the only part of your body that's both an organ and a muscle. Hmm. No other part of your body is both of those things. As an organ, it does things automatically. You have no control over it, just like you can't control your heart, your lungs, your liver, your kidney. As a muscle, that means it can grow and it can also atrophy. Mm. And you have full control over whether it grows or whether it atrophies. So you've got this relationship with your brain where it's independent of you and dependent on you. So as a result of that, you are essentially always in a position where you're shaping part of what it does and unable to control another part of what it does. So when it comes to belief systems and conditioning, some of that is automatic. Hmm. And the only way you can really challenge those automatic elements is by intentionally exercising your brain to learn something new. So you've got to constantly seek out new information, including information that goes against your beliefs because how are you going to challenge your existing beliefs unless you research new information? So a great example, you're, you and I share a common faith. We're both Christian. Mm -hmm. And I'm non-denominational Protestant, if, if you are the kind of Christian that needs to define what kind of Christian you are. So one of the things I have to always be open to do is listen and seek out 
the argument against religion. Mm. You have to seek it out. Like if you want to constantly vet your own belief system, you have to be willing to hear the belief system of other people. I've lived in an Arabic country. I've had, you know, conversations, not debates, just conversations with, with Muslims. Tell me about your faith. Mm -hmm. Don't, I'm not here to proselytize to you. I'm here to challenge my own faith because it's what I feel ordained to do. God gave me a brain that is independent and both a muscle and an organ. He wants me to exercise it. I was made in his likeness. Like this is what God would do. So, so teach me what you believe. Let me learn before I try to force. So you're saying that we have no control of our brains. What I'm saying is we have a part of our brain that we can't control and a part that we can. Just knowing that is more empowering than the people who thought previously, either I have no control or I have total control. And the, the problem is that in the attention economy that we live in, when everyone's trying to boil a concept into a 40-second reel, <laughs> they, they miss the actual nuance, the real depth. And inside the depth is what I call the unfair advantage. My mission in life is to equip people with what I call an unfair advantage, specifically the unfair advantage that CIA gave me and gives every one of its field officers. That unfair advantage is really the ability to understand and accept how human beings can create their own opportunity. And there's so many social norms that keep us from accepting that simple truth. And it's, it's uh, in all societies and all cultures, the idea of being able to generate your own opportunity is something that makes people feel like they're acting unethical, mm. like they're cheating, like they're bypassing, like they're skipping. It's something that we all inherently want to do, but we all feel awkward saying it to a group of people. So my mission is to kind of teach that to the people who are willing to say, let me challenge my own beliefs. Mm. This idea that something is unfair, this idea that I'm uh, taking advantage of someone, uh, or this idea that you know, I'm somehow breaking a rule when we should be asking ourselves, why was the rule set at all? So in your impact theory interview, Andrew, you categorize everyone's life into three categories, public life, private life, and secret life. And of course, secret life grants access to a very, very selective few. Similarly, I always categorize truth into three categories, objective truth, subjective truth, and practical truth. What is subjective is not often objective, and what is objective is not always practical. Any thoughts there? I think that's a genius way of looking at it. And I love the fact that you are subdividing the word truth because truth is not, it's not a single pillar. It's not as black and white as we want it to believe it mm. is because what is true for you may not be true for me. And it's almost guaranteed that what's true for you is not exactly the same thing mm. as what's true for me. Even when it comes down to taxes, right? Like you have to pay taxes. I have to pay taxes. What are the two truths, the two guarantees in life? Death and taxes. <laughs> Those might be guaranteed, but the truth of them is very different. Mm. When it happens, how it happens, how much the impact is to you and your family. What happens after death? What happens after taxes? Is this paying taxes or is this sheltering taxes or is this taking advantage of taxes, right? The truth is, has shades. So I love that you're talking about a subjective truth, an objective truth, and a practical truth. Because what you subjectively can, can feel has very little impact on what objectively can be measured. And what you can measure and what you can feel has very little impact on what you can actually do. And that's where the practical truth comes from. And I, and I feel like 
if we can, I don't know if this is your teaching, but the place where my instinct takes me is if we start from practical, practical will be a constant engine that leads us to objective, Hmm. which will um, help to inform subjective. But I feel like what most people do is they start from subjective, Hmm. which is probably defined by someone else. And then from that, they seek evidence that is objective and reject evidence that goes contrary to what their subjective truth is. And then they try to apply that in a practical way. I think, and to even simplify that is right, I believe like what is true is true in any of those subcategories, but you have to peel back the false layers. You have to destroy the false self, which is what you've been alluding to. So speaking of practical truth, Andrew, like what do you do? either through CIA training or you interpersonally to lay back the layers because I think explicit bias is easy to address and easy for people who are aware, but implicit bias, Mm -hmm. which is also what you've been hinting at, Mm -hmm. is almost impossible because implicit is invisible and is unknown. Yeah. So the first most practical truth that CIA tells us is that you can't destroy the bias in your brain. Remember how we were talking about your Mm -hmm. brain works against you. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about specifically is something called a cognitive bias. Cognitive biases are well-studied, well-known, but they can't be overcome. The best you can do is understand that they're there and have red flags to identify them when they happen. And you can improve the way that your brain resists a cognitive bias, but the bias can't be destroyed. An example of that is in-group bias. Hmm. We want to be accepted. That's just, that's built into our psyche. So we start to accept the beliefs of whatever group we're in. We can't avoid it. You can try to resist it, but there's always going to be a group that you're in mm-hmm. that you accept and be and you adopt the beliefs of that group unless you are truly alone and then you're still going to do it because you're going to believe that you're part of a group of people who are truly alone. So it gets to be this this game of diminishing returns when you try to fight your implicit bias and that's what CIA teaches us. If you try to fight it, there's an optimal point of resistance and then it's a, dim- it's a game of diminishing returns. You're putting more energy into it than you're actually getting benefit out of it. Mm. So they teach us, practically speaking, to accept the fact that we're going to have biases. Mm. Accept it. Don't fight it. Accept it. And then also understand that you can resist to an optimal level where you gain more benefit than the energy and resources you put in. But as soon as you start fighting yourself to a place where you're spending more resources than getting benefit out of the fight, you're suboptimal now. You're suboptimal as an individual, but you're also suboptimal as a member of your community. You're suboptimal as a member of the family. You're suboptimal as a peer and a professional and a partner. So it's your responsibility to remain optimal for yourself, but for all the secondary impacts of what you do as well. So, you know, find that truth, but understand that the journey to finding the truth, you have to be optimized to maintain the endurance it takes to seek what you're looking for, even if that means accepting along the way that you're not perfect. That is so interesting because I think we demonize the word conformity. And yes, of course, there's truth in that. But what I'm sensing from you saying that there's an optimal level of conformity you need to abide by because society compresses people. And I think people like Jordan B. Peterson, Frederick Nietzsche, and all the greats, they are the ones who just 100% went for the true seeking and they subscribe to zero conformity. Mm-hmm. And that's why I make those people great. But if you study their literature, their life, 
it's extremely lonely. They have no family, no love, no relationships. Because I think the absolute truth seeking requires tremendous sacrifice that people don't really think about. You're exactly right. And that's what we're taught too. What we're taught at the agency is to understand that the person who seeks absolutes mm. is flawed. They believe that anything can truly be absolute. Mm. And there's no evidence, there's no empirical evidence out there that anything is absolute. Mm -hmm. Even the, the thing, the bottle of water sitting in front of me, the microphone that I'm talking to, we have science now that demonstrates that this thing is actually not absolute. Mm. That even the physical structure itself is temporary. Quantumly, it could exist somewhere else at the same time that it's existing here. So as we learn to challenge scientifically and mathematically, absolutes, you can understand why people who believe in, in psychological or philosophical absolutes are fundamentally flawed. And because they are flawed, they don't realize that they're flawed. Hmm. And in the world of espionage and human intelligence collection, the most vulnerable people are the people who have a flaw and don't realize they have a flaw hmm. because they become susceptible to other people taking advantage and manipulating the environment around them. And very much so, with, without a doubt, CIA has a bad reputation. They have earned that bad reputation because their mission mm -hmm. is to manipulate people in order to extract secrets to protect American lives. That's what we do. And if you want to talk CIA, you have to accept that that's what they do. And thank God they do it. Mm. Because if they didn't extract the secrets, Americans would be less safe. Mm. And we live in a world where there's no absolutes, but if you have to take a practical truth approach, you have to choose a side. I was born in this country. I love this country. I believe in this country. Practically speaking, I have to side with this country. Mm. Even though I may believe, you know, subjectively, I may believe that we're all global citizens. My practical truth is I have to be American first. Yeah, as a veteran, I believe in benign shadow force, mm. which is what CIA is. And yeah, obviously, it's, it's not a black and white world. When you demonize something, you're also not realizing you're reaping the benefits of being an American citizen. Full stop. Yep. So, I do want to go into the practical truth a little bit. In the intro, I talked about sometimes beholder of information is burdened by the information. That applies to you more than anyone. And even for me, I know a lot of, of secrets and things that the guest has never told people, and I don't share them. I'm also a psychotherapist. My patients listen to my podcast, so I abide by my integrity for everyone's sake. And not just the urge for me to share these things, because I was like, only if you knew about some of these things. And I'm sure that's even for tenfold for you. So how do you navigate that? Is it more about, I know I have these certain subsets of information I can never share with the world, classified or otherwise, because you know the burdensome nature in those certain informations. Yeah, how do you navigate your internal and your world with this information that's just ever more like cumulative? Uh, it's, there's two parts to my answer, right? And the, f the part that I'll start with first is the simplest part. We were recruited through a very heavy recruitment process. Mm. The vetting that we were talking about earlier, the vetting of a, of a CIA officer and just like the vetting of an FBI officer is extremely rigorous. And one of the things they're looking for is the, the psychological data points that show that in our personality and in our own way of processing information, our core wiring, we don't carry the burden. Mm to the same level as other people or more sensitive people. Mm. So you don't know me very well yet. That'll change over the years. 
but I am not a very sensitive person. Hmm. I mean, my friends and my family know this about me and they're probably laughing as they listen, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not insensitive, but I'm also not necessarily very sensitive. Empathy is something I had to learn. Hmm. I don't naturally feel other people's pain or other people's concerns or other people's worry. If anything, I overvalue the idea that maybe they want to be told the truth. Hmm. CIA taught me that people don't want to be told the truth. People like having space between the burden of truth and their own perceived version of the truth. So the first part of how I carry it is I have been, I have the psychological indicators of somebody who just bears the burden well because I don't remember the details. I've seen nasty, horrible things. I don't remember the details. So <laughs> when I go to sleep at night, I don't see the bodies. I don't see the blood. I don't hear the screams. I don't feel the pain. I just don't. Hmm. Even though I know I was exposed to it, I don't feel it. I don't see it. My memory didn't hold it. My brain isn't conditioned to hold on to those details. I wasn't traumatized by it. Mm. The trauma kind of rolled off my back when it happened. The second tool that's beneficial to us is to understand that people don't want to know the truth, like I mentioned. So because, because I don't hold the burden of those details as well as somebody else might, it's also comforting for me to know that other people don't want to know those details, so it's easier for me to let them go. As much as people hate the idea of a terrorist, and as much as people love the idea of us fighting and defeating terrorists, nobody wants to hear hmm. about how we kill terrorists, hmm. how we strategically disassemble their cells in violent ways to increase and the deterrence factor of the second in command becoming the new commander of the cell. Mm. Nobody wants to hear those details. They just want to live very comfortably in the space where they know what happens, mm. generally speaking. So I have two ways of not having to feel the pain of the burden, even though I know it's there. I'm going to go dark for a second because I got some goosebumps when you said most people don't want the truth. They want the truth that conforms to their idea of comfortable truth is even for a lot of like patients and their families, especially for people with severe depression or suicidal ideations. Once or twice, they can do a far cry to their family and their friends. They're very supportive. What do you need? I got you. Tell us. We're here for you. But there's a threshold. Once you pass that threshold, the families actually get more distance. And they withdraw from that because as you said, they don't want the full truth. They want the level of truth that's optimal to their conditioning. And I want to segue into the unfair advantage you alluded to. Do you think your psychological hardware that you're born with, that you've been conditioned and primed with, do you utilize that with social engineering and some of your tactical or psychological warfare, not just with spies and terrorists per se, but just just social engineering generally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. So one of the ways that I learned in hindsight at CIA, one of the ways I learned I was naturally wired and, and many of my peers were naturally wired is with something that CIA calls ethical flexibility, mm. right? This idea of moral or ethical flexibility is basically an idea that we're all coded with ethics and with morals, mm. right? Ethics are the conformed norms that are put on you from outside. Morals are the norms that you dictate for yourself from inside, right? So if you're an attorney, there's ethical standards. If you're a human being, you have some kind of moral standards. What CIA finds in everybody that it hires is people who are able to flex on both fronts because sometimes the mission requires that you drop some of your ethical boundaries. 
or that you do something that you once found immoral. You have to have the ability to, to be flexible with these things, selectively use them. And speaking of absolutes, oftentimes people find their ethics and morals to be absolute. I am not ever going to hurt another person. I can give you at least three examples off the top of my head where you would hurt another person. Mm. But that's uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Give, me a, give me a cushion uh-huh. between the, the real truth, the practical truth, and my objective truth, right? My subjective truth, excuse me. The people, they want that cushion. So to your point, there is absolutely a level of conformity there that's comfortable for people and they want to stay within that distance. My brain's going somewhere really weird, so I'm just going to follow it. Go for it. You talked about Christian faith. I'm a deacon at my church. I serve every Sunday. I subscribe to servant leadership. This is just one of many avenues I try to fulfill that. Mm. A lot of Christians struggle with their absolutist beliefs, that moral is this rigid and flexible thing. And of course, aside from the fact that God is merciful, that aside, how does your flexible ethic, like flexible ethics conflict, if any, with your Christian faith or any of the teachings? I'm just, I'm curious. So a lot of it comes from what I deem to be my, the core of my personal faith. And the core of my personal faith comes down to a single passage from the Bible that says that God's ways are not our ways. Mm. And everything that we do in our life is our way. Even when we try to interpret what we think is God's way, it's our way. And what does the Bible say about that? Don't try to interpret my way. Mm. Don't worry. Don't worry because your worry is unnecessary because you don't have any way to conceptualize what Mm. God is actually trying to do. So I double down on that and and then I don't discount the fact that he's a merciful God, (laughs) right? Like I'm going to screw up. I'm going to make mistakes. I can't try to figure out his way. He's told me not to try to figure out his way or I have the human beings around me have interpreted it to mean don't try. One way or the other, I'm going to screw up. It goes right back to the original lesson about you just, you're going to make mistakes. You have to accept that you don't know everything. So move forward. So for me, I feel like I have to move forward. There are certain things that are blessings in my life that I cannot explain. Why Mm. am I the one that gets to do this? Mm. Why am I the first CIA officer to be this public? There's no explanation for that. This should have happened decades ago. Why am I the first one to do it? Why am I the one that gets... To, to be invited to shows like this and have, an, have conversations like this with you. Why is it me? Mm. It, it could have happened to anybody. There's a level here of something I can't explain, but I have to follow it because it's the blessing that's been put in front of me. And if you want to talk about true burdens, it's the people who have been called and the people who have been blessed. That's a, they have to carry a burden with them. That's how my faith kind of explains that very practical, mm. subjective truth. I want to zoom into the unknowability of God that you just referenced. C.S. Lewis, a Christian philosopher and mystic, he says that one of the fundamental characteristics of God is unknowability. Mm-hmm. The moment you think you know God, it ceases to be God. And I want to segue into the question where, what are some of the unknowability with the tactics you've been taught, social engineering? Um, because I know in your interview you talked about your objective is to penetrate their public life, mm-hmm. private life, and access to be the selected few to enter their secret life. Because once you're in, you are in. Right. A good place to start is understanding that there's a difference between desire and drive, right? And the easiest place to see this is with sex, Hmm. right? People talk about a sex drive. 
And people say that, oh, my sex drive is strong or my sex drive is low. And we, we, we tend to oversimplify the idea of sex. Mm. And sex is so much more complicated than just a physical act, mm. right? There's intimacy there. There's relationship there. There's trust there. There's all sorts of things there. So when you look at sex and you, and you just give yourself permission to accept that there's sex drive and sex desire, mm. there's two different things, right? And when you accept that there's two different things, you start to see, you start to ask yourself naturally, well, which one is more powerful? And the answer is the desire is what's more powerful than the drive because what's driving you is the thing you desire, whether it's physical stimulation or personal intimacy or like overwhelmed energy, who knows what it is, right? But the desire is what drives you more than anything else. So one of those things that's really difficult and one of those un unknowable things is what other people desire because oftentimes they don't even know what they desire. So when you make this, when you're cultivating an asset, when we talk about moving someone, penetrating their public life into their private life and their private life into their secret life, what we're talking about is cultivating an asset. Everybody has a desire for what they want the world to see them as. Hmm. So they craft this public life, but we don't know why they desire that. And they may not even know why they desire that. But interestingly enough, what they desire in their public life is not the same thing as what they desire in their private life. So once you penetrate that first level, now you have to readjust to understand what the person desires in their private life. And then understanding that they don't even know what they desire in their private life. And it gets even more complicated when you move into their secret life. So what you're doing is we have a system and a process for readjusting to be able to understand about the person what they don't understand about themselves. But there's no way to confirm that you're right. Wow. It's unknowable. So all you can do is, is kind of, it's like bowling. <laughs> it's like, I'm not in the gutter on the left. I'm not in the gutter on the right, but I really don't know how many pins I'm going to knock down. Mm. That's exactly what it's like in the whole world of human intelligence. And if you can accept and work inside that unknowable space, you could succeed or you could fail. Odds are you're going to fail. Practical truth, people don't like going into situations where it's high confidence that they're going to fail. Mm. So one of the things that CIA does is it recruits people and trains them to accept failure at a very high rate mm. and understand that failing is learning and failure leads to success. Nobody gets success right out of the gates. So you have to fail on the way. So the more of an appetite you have for that, the better the success you will have down the road. So would you say that it's harder to penetrate there are barriers of their firewall psychologically if they have like cultivated higher self of awareness because I think self-awareness is knowing of yourself but also knowing about your multi-layers and your firewall, your flaws, the loopholes you have, the echo chamber and so on. And I imagine, I agree with you, most people are utterly unaware. Mm -hmm. They think they are, but they're not. A lot of people lack insights psychologically, mentally, emotionally. So I'm thinking about from your lens where, yes, the, ch the probability of failure is high, but you, you got to do what you got to do, right? You got to pay your bills. You got to fulfill your duty. So how do you a, identify people with differing levels of awareness and do you make any adjustments? Uh, but bringing back to the first question is, yeah, do you encounter that where the level of difficulty increases as the people you're dealing with are more like, highly self-aware? Yes. I'm going to answer your second question first because you're exactly right. The more truly self-aware somebody is, we use the word self-actualized, not mm. self-aware. The more self-actualized a person actually is, which means they have a clear and accurate objective perspective about themselves, mm. right? Clear, accurate, objective, measurable. 
right? The more they have self-actualization, the more difficult it is to, in basic terms, manipulate them Mm. because they can see the manipulation and they can see where they're vulnerable to the manipulation and they can combat their vulnerability and therefore combat the manipulation itself. Anybody out there who's tried to convince someone to sleep with them, when that person actually felt a sense of personal value and they were, they rejected the advance, you know exactly what it's like to deal with somebody who's self-actualized. They understand their value. They don't have to prove themselves to you. They're not seeking your approval. So they're like, no, I don't really want to have sex with you, right? Like that is what it's like on a grand scale when you're trying to cultivate an asset who has self-actualization. That doesn't mean they can't be cultivated. It just means it's, you have to change your tactic Mm. about how you do it. And for sure, the easier target is a target who believes that they're self-aware, but is actually not self-actualized. That's the perfect person because that person has an overconfidence about what they're capable of and a complete ignorance of what they are actually motivated by. So it's, I mean, now you're dealing with, essentially you're dealing with a child. Hmm. A child thinks they know what the world is, but they don't. And it's not because they're dumb. It's just because they haven't had the world experience yet. Now, the tool we use to, to kind of answer the second, the first question second, the tool we use is, is understand the difference between assumption and assessment, hmm. right? Assumption is when you come to a conclusion based on your own beliefs. Assessment is when you come to a conclusion based off of what you observe. Now, both your observations and your core beliefs can be subjective, but with assessment, you understand that it's an ongoing process. With assumption, it's a one-time process. Mm. So you see the difference between the two. When you use assessment, you learn more about people, you observe and track their changes over time, and you adjust your tactics to drive them towards their desires. When you focus on assumptions, you lose the opportunity to do all of those things. It's essentially, you lose your unfair advantage. How often do you then do this self-assessing process for yourself? And my brain's going somewhere where relationships, attachment theory is one of my favorite things as a psychotherapist. And I know so many couples and married couples and family, they separate and do not work out because they're running on years of assumptions because they don't stress test it. There's no speed bump to slow them down. So blink of an eye, 20 years have passed and all of their resentment and anger and feelings towards the other person is built on that one time assumption that you just talked about. The only way to counter that is to continuously and ongoing basis to self-assess. So get practical again, Andrew, like what are some of your self-assessing process? Do you do this daily, every hour, anything in between? Yeah. So whenever I feel as particularly lost and that happens in business, it happens with young kids, it happens in my marriage, like there'll be times where I feel very lost. And when we talk about secret life, public life, private life, and secret life, the definition of secret life is the life that only you know you have. Mm. It's the place where all of your heaviest shame and guilt and self-criticism and you know where your lust and your drives and your desires are so dark that you're afraid you would be rejected if you even shared them. And we all have them, right? That's your secret life. We all get lost in our secret life sometimes because we sit there and we start thinking, oh, if my mom knew about this, if my wife knew about this, if my boss knew about this, they'd reject me and I would be alone and I would be outcast and ostracized from the community. And then all of your fears start to mount. In many ways, people who suffer from anxiety know this feeling acutely without having to even be in their secret life space. They can go into anxiety attacks in their public life space, right? So when I find myself lost, 
deeply lost, the first thing I do is I implement a tool that we call the, uh, it's a self-reflection process, right? We call it a check-in, a checkpoint. And, and multiple times a day, generally for me, it's five times a day. Wake up, breakfast, lunch, dinner, pre-bed. So I'll check in on myself five times and I'll just ask myself, how do I physically feel? How do I emotionally feel? What are my emotions impacting about my physical body? What is my physical body doing to impact my emotions in a moment, five times a day? And when you do that for say three, five, seven days, you now have a documented history where you've self-audited the relationship between your emotions and your body at different times of the day for multiple days. And then you'll start to see, oh, I'm waking up and I'm feeling blue. And the day before, uh, my dinner is crap and I feel really bad after I eat my dinner. So if I change dinner the night before, mm. is that going to change the way I feel when I wake up in the morning? And you can start making actual practical changes to working your way through that dark feeling, that lost feeling. That's for me, when I feel really lost, that's one of the first things I do. When I feel less lost or when I feel confident, in many ways, that's when my red flag goes the highest mm. is when I feel like I'm on the right path because then I start wondering, ooh, to feel this confident, I must be missing something, right? So then I'll start implementing a process where I work with a very few people, very few small close people in my, in my private life and I'll tell them, I am feeling really good and I want to appreciate the fact that I'm feeling really good, but I want to make sure I'm not missing something. So I'll take it to my wife. I'll take it to one of my best friends, right? I'll take it to one of three people in my private life and say, help me pressure check what I'm thinking and doing right now because I, I'm either missing an opportunity or I'm over investing in something that's not going to yield fruit, but something has me overconfident right now and I want to fight that. This is amazing. You truly are a back-end psychologist and psychotherapist <laughs> because you're literally implementing CBT, cognitive behavior therapy. You're hyperly aware that your cognitive process, your thoughts, the content of your thoughts impact your emotions and the patterns of your emotions impact your behaviors. Mm -hmm. And any of those three can be entry points. That's why CBT is the most widely applied evidence-based practice because as you said, when you're feeling good, you can still apply CBT. When you're feeling bad, air quote, you can also apply CBT. But also the through line that you're alluding to is grounding takes a tribe. And you also talked about loneliness throughout this conversation. Loneliness is the number one cause for depressions and mental health challenges, period. And that loneliness only exaggerates as you get older, mm. especially for, I think the highest suicide rate now is white men in their 58 to 62 range who just finished their work, retired. Guess what? The basket of their purpose and meaning is no more yeah. because they're retired and they don't have people to ground themselves like a tribe you alluded to in your private life, your wife, your few friends. And the loneliness, I think, is only getting worse through the increased superficiality and the increased superficial relationships in this era of social proof, social media. Because people don't know this, Andrew, having relationships is not the same thing as having meaningful relationships. I completely agree with that. And a big part of the tool set that CIA uses to execute their unfair advantage and collect intelligence around the world is understanding exactly that difference. Mm -hmm. That what we, what we seek, what we desire is meaningful relationships. But we are driven by art of like superficial relationships, which we call relationships, mm. right? Why do we call some people acquaintances, some people friends, some people family, even though they're actually friends? We're, we're trying to put labels because we want to remain, we want to keep that protective cushion 
between the truth and our conformed idea of the truth. And the truth is meaningful relationships take a scary amount of investment. Hmm. So we don't want to make that investment, but we still want the benefits. So we live in this world of superficial relationships and those superficial relationships will never replace truly meaningful relationships. To go one step deeper into that, that is what makes people so vulnerable to espionage because espionage is a truly meaningful relationship. It is, but it's abusive by default. The relationship is not equal. If you and I enter a truly meaningful relationship, it is a give and a take, right? You will feel the pain of our relationship just like you will feel the pleasure of our relationship. That's mm. why we avoid meaningful relationships. However, in, a, in an equal relationship, we'll feel it equally, right? That doesn't mean you might not go through a hard time in your life where I pour more into you than I get from you, but over time, we'll have equality. In espionage, we create the artificial perception of an equal meaningful relationship when empirically, objectively, it is not equal at all. We are, I would be taking your secrets, exposing you to more risk, and creating a, a bubble that ensures my safety is higher and more reliable than your security. Because in a relationship of an espionage form, the asset is always disposable. Hmm. The handler who's collecting the information is the person who has the skill set to be able to create another asset. It's like a queen bee versus a worker bee. The queen bee is the one that makes more bees. So the queen bee becomes the one that's the higher value asset. Can you quickly define what espionage is, uh, either through a technical term and then like more layman, like colloquially? Absolutely. So espionage is illegal in every, in every country, everywhere. Espionage is fully illegal. Espionage is the process of stealing proprietary information. Mm. That is what espionage is. Sometimes you steal that information through a computer hack, right? That's called cyber espionage. Sometimes you're stealing secrets that are industrial in nature, having to do with business. That's industrial espionage. And then you have stealing secrets from, from foreign governments, right? That benefit your own government. That is like national security hmm. espionage, right? Or international espionage. So espionage is the process of stealing something that is proprietary. To put that in layman's terms, it means that you're taking something from somebody else that they should be protecting. So even like if you're, if you're talking about espionage between families, right? When you steal somebody's cookie recipe without asking them, mm. when you steal somebody's favorite restaurant without giving them credit, right? When you steal from someone and make it your own, that is espionage. So espionage is the thievery of information? I'm going to say yes, because the proprietary thing is almost always information in nature. So in your Chris Williamson interview, you referenced culture subversion and using social media as an infiltration tool of war, which is, man, with the rapid rise of AI, the fake LLMs, it's even more prevalent than when you did your interview with Chris. The best definition of algorithm that I heard is encoded opinions. Mm. That's it. So how do we ensure we are not trapped in our echo chamber of similarly encoded opinions of others because I think as everything you said so far, it tells me that unless you have achieved the enlightened level of self-actualization, you need to not just protect your firewall, but protect the fire of your surroundings. Because it sounds like to me, the entry point can be happened, not just through you, but your proxies. The and That's not going to be a popular answer. <laughs> it's not going to be a popular answer. The short answer is you will always be trapped. 
Mm. You will always be trapped in your echo chamber. What I want to do is I want to help you visualize what I mean by that. Some people are in a very small cell mm. in prison, right? So small, they don't have a roommate. So small, even in, if you think about like Vietnam, people were put in cages where they were too short for them to stand and too short for them to lay down. So they were always in a squat position. Mm. So some people have an echo chamber that's that small and they are that trapped and they're extremely vulnerable to the psychological impacts and implications of social engineering of, you know, the, the rise of influence operations and cultural subversion. Because they're in such a small, tight space, they have no perspective mm. of anything larger. You can work to break down those walls, but you're still in a larger cell. And you can work to break down those walls, but you're still in a larger cell, right? It's the challenge and the constant questioning, the constant vetting, the constant pressure testing of your own beliefs, your own ideas, the ideas of the people that surround you. Because here's the truth. The five people who surround you define the average of what you believe in. So if you want to believe and learn more, you have to start shedding the exact same tribe that keeps you from feeling lonely, which is the one desire that nobody has. So you, the idea of constantly shedding the people who are in your private life, that's a very uncomfortable idea to people. I mean, think about that. That means your life partner, your spouse either grows with you or you get rid of them. That's a scary, scary idea. I mean, for anybody out there who still thinks that their mom and dad are awesome, <laughs> you need to shed that at some point. You need to understand that your parents are fundamentally flawed. They did the best they could do with you. They put everything they could into you. But your job, their mission for you was for you to grow past them. You have to shed them. You can still love them, but they can't be part of your five inner circle and you have to keep growing and keep growing. But every time you grow, you're still inside of a cage, right? Even with Buddhist uh, faith-based people and Buddhist monks, they all accept that they haven't reached enlightenment yet. They might be in a giant warehouse, mm. but they're still in a cage. And they keep trying to go one layer out and one layer out. The hardest part of that is that if you're not breaking walls down, then the walls are being built up around you and you're getting put back. You're going backwards. So you're either going forwards or you're going backwards. There is no rest where you get to stand in one place and be stationary and successful. You're either growing or conforming. Wow. I just had an argument with my fiance last week. And we realized that when you're not actively working toward problems, the problems will find you. And I love the discomfort in that response. Thanks for being honest. Because you're right. Like you can be trapped in a smaller well, but still a well. And the larger you get, that doesn't mean you're out of the well, right? The only way to escape is to escape the matrix collectively. <laughs> and of course, I don't have access to blue pill or red pill. But I do see some hope though, because I think your response demands proactivity and action and communication. Because I think the most effective tool that humans ever created is language. Mm. Think about what language is. It's artificial, synthetic, man-made. But through this thing we cultivate historically, you and I, different skin color, different zip code, different national, I mean, same nationality, but different ethnicities, we're able to communicate what's the internal to the external through this man-made tool. And a lot of research shows that that's the reason why Homo sapiens became the predominant apex over Neanderthals. Because Neanderthals, they were bigger, larger brains. But we, as Homo sapiens, were largest social gatherings. Mm -hmm. If you look at archaeological records like fossils, and that, I think, transpired to language. Because language is a bridge. And 
the best way to implement language is communication. And what's fascinating is that communication isn't isn't error free, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like even even the word yellow. Mm. What ins what the word yellow inspires in you as you hear this word is not the same thing as it inspires in mm. me. Right? We see different things. We see different shades. We see different levels of brightness. We see different objects. I might think of sunflower. You might think of lemon. Mm. So, so communication is still, there's still room for interpretation, which builds in error. Right? And to take it back again to the faith-based conversation, I, I believe that this is all indicative of why we live in a fallen world. Mm. Even our communication, which is synthetic and man-made, is our effort to try to resolve the fallen nature of the world that we live in, but it's still imperfect because it's made by us. Uh, and what's fascinating about language is that space for interpretation is both a weakness and a tool to give you an unfair advantage. If you understand that everyone's going to interpret your word yellow differently, you can actually build into your communication strategy a way to tighten up their understanding of what you mean by yellow, to ensure that they understand you better than they realize they understand you, so that you can get a more predictable outcome than the person who doesn't reflect on that, right? The person who stands up on stage and says, yeah, I looked at this yellow orange or I looked at this yellow lemon. Everybody in the audience has a different idea mm. versus the person who says, have you ever looked at the perfect yellow lemon? Now that, that, those, that phrase has now primed them for something very different than the person who just said yellow lemon. That's so relevant because as we briefly talked about, about podcasting before we press record is even as a podcaster, what I realized is the focal point that I love is often not what the audience takes away. <laughs> I was like, you took away that from the conversation? How? And the way I mitigate that is I do a lot of front loading. I do a lot of prefacing, contextualizing, recontextualizing, but it's exhausting, right? And not everyone want to sit there to hear through my prefacing and the pretext before the context, because context is everything. So for you, like, how do you do that? Like, how do you reverse engineer from their potential assumptions of understanding and incorporate that in your way of communicating all at the same time? Well, the first thing I do is I understand another concept that the agency taught us, uh, which is actually a, a mathematical principle called the Pareto principle. 80-20. Mm, 80-20 rule, right? Of the 100% of all people who you're going to talk to, 80% are not going to remember it. 20% will. <laughs> yeah. Of the 20% that will remember it, 80% will only have it stored in their short-term memory. 20% mm. will have it stored in their long-term memory. So what that means is if you're talking to a room of 100 people, Four people at best are going to take anything you said and store it in your long-term memory. So that takes all the pressure off of us mm. because when we create something, when we share an idea, we're not sharing the idea for 96 of the 100 people. We are assuming that those 96 of 100 are going to walk out the door and forget us as soon as they remember that they want a Starbucks coffee. Mm. We're doing all this work for just <laughs> four people. So if there's a thousand people listening to this right now, we're, we're having this conversation for only 40 of them. Mm. And for me, and for what the agency taught me, that's what makes it worth it. So you need to speak very clearly about the thing that you are trying to communicate and understand that you're communicating to a very small minority. And if they get it, you've done your job. And that's basically how it works. It's kind of liberating when you reframe, and of course, reframe is something you've referenced through the entire conversation, right? But to me, it sounds surprisingly liberating. 
Absolutely. Because now the pressure is not on you. It's not on you to make sure everybody understands the context of what you're trying to say. And, and I've noticed that you, you take great effort in making sure that you are contextualizing and, and giving a, a foundation for what you're about to say next. The reality is that 96% of the people who are listening to you right now, they don't remember the first thing you said in your preface, your, pre your preface, right? They know that you're prefacing, but they don't remember what you just prefaced. It's only that 20% that are like, oh, I remember what that preface was all about, right? How many people remember right now the conversation that started this short segment? A very small percentage. But it doesn't take away your impact, man. It doesn't take away your value. If anything, it exacerbates it because the divide that we see in human beings. And if you want to talk about an uncomfortable truth, projecting forward the future of our country, what is the division going to look like? It will not be a division of race. People keep talking about race because they don't want to talk about the really uncomfortable truth. The division is a socioeconomic division. Yep. That is the division that we face. That is a division of 80-20. Like that is the Pareto principle. Of 100% of the population, there will always be 20% that have and 80% that have not. Mm -hmm. Biblical. There will always be poor people. There will, they will be there always, mm. right? We have to accept that that is the foundation if you are going to ever accept success in what you're trying to accomplish. If you reject that there will always be that divide, if you reject that mathematical principle, you are rejecting the very opportunity that you need to embrace to be able to move beyond and take advantage of that principle. The unfair advantage of embracing the opportunity that that knowledge gives you. If you, res if you resist and reject it, you're doomed for a different fate. I think this will be the interview I get canceled for after I've interviewed <laughs> actresses, pastor, Christian philosopher, and a graceful atheist, my last episode. But I make that because I want to echo that. I've never shared this publicly because it's deeply uncomfortable. I'm very empathetic and I share some of the characteristics. That's why I could do trauma therapy, dealing with patients with schizophrenia. I'm a forensic clinician, so that's my nature of work. I hear some grotesque details every day but I lose zero sleep over it, right? Because I know by the time I leave my clinic, I've done my job. When I get home, it's podcasts and reading and other things. But I agree with you because I do feel like according to Pareto law slash principle, there's always going to be societal ills. And ills are not people, but ills are the phenomena that comprise of people like homelessness, poverty, income inequality, whatever otherism. Because you need the contrast to appreciate the other side. If everyone is enlightened, enlightenment loses its power. If everyone's mindful and self-actualized, self-actualization loses its essence. And you need the dark shadow forces to appreciate the other. So in a way, I truly believe that these illness of the society that we are deeply grappling with day to day for people like us. And that's what I meant in the beginning. Beholders of information are often burdened mm -hmm. by the knowledge. And at the same time, I do agree that awareness is our only tool to move past that. Thank you for sharing it, man. I mean, it takes courage to make that statement. And if that courage turns into any kind of canceling, that, that's okay. Because the very same people who are canceling that amount of courage are people who have such a thick cushion mm. that they'll never embrace your truth. Mm. So it's better to get them off the table so that we can serve the people who are willing to challenge their cushion at a higher level, right? It's, it's so powerful, man. It's that whole concept of you can't have the light without the dark. Mm. It's that whole concept of you can improve society slowly, right? You can improve situations, but you can't do it 
easily. It takes a challenge. It takes growth. It hurts to grow. Anybody who's ever lifted weights, anybody who's ever gone through puberty understands that. It hurts to grow. But we live in a world where we've been conditioned to embrace comfort. Hmm. It, it's, it goes completely against all the conditioning that we have been programmed with in a modern day society. I cannot believe you just said light and dark. That's crazy. All right. So, I have a question just for you. Since we're in this heavy waters, let's go all the way in it. Why do you think some people go toward the light, whereas many don't? Alluding to your ability to influence people, penetrate their firewall, get into their secret life uh, through CIA trainings and psychological warfare. And of course, I think you hinted at this. I might be wrong, but I do believe in the optimal level of antisocial tendencies or sociopathy. Because some of my clients are that. Mm -hmm. some, of course, it's a spectrum. Right. The, the whole idea that there is a utility in, in sociopaths and a utility in psychopaths, mm. right? That's, that's demonstrable. What do you think a tier one Navy SEAL is? Mm. They're a psychopath. They actually have wiring in their brain that makes it so they feel less pain mm. and they can do just incredibly dangerous, challenging, terrifying, abusive things to people and not carry it home with them. Mm. Or they can be trained in a short period of predictable time in order to execute that mission. That doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that we found a way to make to utilize their sociopathy or their, their, psych, their psychopathy for something productive. The answer to your question about why do some people veer towards the light? Why do some people veer towards the dark? I believe the answer to that lies in the conversation we had about drive and desire. Mm. It's about the desire of the person. There was a CA officer that I was very close. I'll come back to this at the end of the story. I was very close friends with. One of my closest friends at CIA, he came on duty with me. He was just such a friendly, jolly, awesome guy to be around. And we came in under two different types of, of cover. We had two different types of operational skill sets. We had two different backgrounds. But I adored this guy. He was a great friend. Everybody adored this guy. He's a great friend. Over time, what I learned is that he was a he was an absolute liar that he lied for fun. He lied all the time. Like he was the kind of guy that would use a different name every time he went to a restaurant to make a reservation just for fun, just for the giggles of the host thinking his name is Gus, the host thinking his name is, you know, Ralph, the host thinking or struggling with calling him Gustafson, right? Like he would lie just to lie. What I learned over time is that he had a desire to just simply be a manipulative, be the one person in the room who understood his real name or understood the mm. truth. He just wanted that over and then to prove that over and over again. It doesn't make him an evil guy. It just speaks to his desires. Thank God CIA has him mm. and they're making something productive out of his sociopathy. But to go back to the beginning of the story, what did I call this guy? An awesome guy who was my friend? Hmm. I have no way of being able to prove that that was ever true. I could have been, that whole friendship with him could have been, and most likely was, artificially created by him just to be smarter than me. Damn. Right? That desire that people have is the one thing that we will never get to know. And they may not know it themselves and may not define it themselves, but that's what I believe drives people to execute their desire in a productive way for public good or exercise their desire in a dark way for something that serves their own best interests. 
And I often, I often comment that the difference between a hero and a villain mm. is just one or two degrees. It's, they have the same skill sets, the same risk tolerance, the same innovative tendencies, right? The same drive. It's just the desire that makes one become a villain and one become a hero. Reverend MLK, a lot of people don't know his quote, but my favorite quote from him is, everybody is a sinner and a saint. Mm. And I think what you said is just that, right? Like, yes, his desire is lying pathologically. Sounds like he's a pathological liar, definitely on the sociopathy spectrum. But he's still called by the duty to serve. Thank the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> it's how I feel about a lot of people I met at CIA. Like, I am so glad they're on our side. I've shaken hands with tier one operators from the SEAL teams to the Delta teams and the MARSOC teams. And you meet these people and you are, I am, thank God you are on our side. I want to actually transition into reality break. You had a reality break moment at age 12 when you realized everyone is living their own lives with infinitely complex web of life of their own. Like even now between you, me and Josh, there's invisible thread lines and webs happening as we speak, but you have no idea. And it's not just irrelevant, it's invisible and non-existent to you, which is profound because I had a similar realization when I was like 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. Any other meaningful reality break moments that you can recall in this spot or feel free to dive into the one I just talked about? The second reality break moment, and, and that one was big, but I wasn't aware of how profound it was, hmm. right? When you're 12, <laughs> cool things happen and you're like, oh, you know what? That There's a car going that direction on the highway and they're going somewhere and they're coming from somewhere and wow, I never thought of that. And that's basically it. But my, my bigger, more meaningful reality break happened. This is somewhere in the first two weeks of my training at the farm with CIA. And the farm is their covert training base where they train their field officers in a course that's known as the Field Tradecraft Course or FTC. FTC is the, is the official term for what everybody calls the farm on a classified location. So it's not a real farm. We call it the farm because we're a bunch of livestock, right? Like Damn. you think you know something about the world and then you go to the farm and you realize I am a fucking lamb. And I am surrounded by lions. So that's why we call it the farm. And it's, it's, the play, it's the training ground, right? Where you either get slaughtered or you upgrade. So during those first two weeks, we go through a series of rapid indoctrinal trainings where they teach us practical, tactical psychology. That's what I'm calling it now. That's not what they called it then. But it's what I'm realizing now as I, as I talk to people like you who say like you're, you're learning psychology on the back end. It's exactly right. I am learning now that the tactics I was taught practically have a foundation in psychological like studies. We just were never told the science first because we didn't need to know the science mm. first. We just needed to know how to shoot the gun. We don't need to know how the gun was manufactured. Mm. So in those first two weeks, I often describe it as it's like going to an optometrist and you go to an optometrist and if you're getting glasses or if you ever had to have your eyes checked for glasses, there's this machine they put on your face and it's got dozens of lenses on both sides. And it's just like, and every time the lens change, what you see changes slightly. Mm. Sometimes it's foggy. Sometimes it's clear. Sometimes the right eye is very clear and the left eye is blacked out. And then the left eye is very clear and the right eye is blacked out. But after all the, then all of a sudden, boom, it lands. And you see the world like you never saw the world before. And it's crystal clear lines and it's bright, reverent colors and everything is just there. That happened probably day eight at CIA, at CIA's farm training, where I realized what drives people, what drives me, 
my fundamental flaws that brought me to this point in my life, the fundamental flaws that all these other people have, and they've not been to the optometrist yet. And that I get to be the traveling optometrist that takes advantage of their blindness. And I do it in order to keep all the blind people in my own country comfortably safe without having to challenge that space and learn the truth of what they don't really want to learn. And that I joined this privileged group of people who get to see things for what it really is. And once you learn that, the reason they front load that, those lessons into you is because once you accept that truth, everything they teach you about how to execute that truth, you can rationalize. From hurting people, to hiding people, to stealing people. It doesn't matter what they teach you. Once you've seen the truth, once you've seen the clarity, you'll do anything to keep that picture clear. Right? My mission with my business now, my mission with everything I do now, I can't recreate that for people. Mm. I can't give them that level of clarity, not without having two weeks with them on the farm. But what I can do is I can show people that you can change one lens. And if you can change one lens and change the way the whole world looks to you, that empowers you to realize you can change the next lens. And you can keep shifting lenses until you find that clarity on your own. It's out there. And it's not. It's not what you were born with. It's not what you were conditioned with. It's not how you see the world now. And there's people out there who, who inherently already suspect it, but they've been looking for someone to validate it and someone to demonstrate a path of how they seek the truth, how they find that clarity. And I don't have all the answers, but I have a whole hell of a lot of skills and tools that CIA gave me to find that. And that's what I'm giving out. That's what I'm trying to do with my personal mission. This is a vast loaded question. What are the processes or key secret ingredients that's part of this indoctrination process? Because a close friend of mine, um, Dan Maring, he has a top history podcast. His cousin was an IRA terrorist uh, back in the 80s. But he was baffled when he saw the news because he was this very meek, very docile person. But I think they lost contact for about a few years. And the next thing he heard is he blew himself up in Ireland as part of IRA. And him and I, we talked a lot about like, how do you extremify someone's internal operation belief by changing their part of personalities and, and in such a traumatic way? And I sent some of the same process, I'm sure CIA did. How did they do it? So there's an actual process that extremists specifically use that they have perfected over years. So mm -hmm. you got to keep in mind that there's the intelligence infrastructure for cultivating an asset, which has been professionalized and studied because CIA learned from CIA developed out of OSS, which was the army's version of human intelligence collection. OSS developed from MI6 and they created that service long before OSS existed, long before CIA existed. So you have this history of proven performance over time and proven professional practices versus what extremists do, which is you know, through the school of hard knocks. So extremists actually use something they call a ladder. And what that ladder does is it turns people into like fundamentalists. And it all starts with being able to validate an external oppressor, right? And that's, that's something that's so important in the world of extremism. It's also very important in the, in the world of human asset development, human intelligence. Mm. We all feel like there is something external holding us back. We all feel like it, whether it's race, color, creed, family income, beliefs, 
you know, a bad boss, whatever it might be. We all believe that there's some sort of external a thing that's holding us back. We don't ever want to face the uncomfortable truth that it's maybe all internal, mm. right? When you go down a path of personal growth and self-actualization, you start to come to accept, I'm doing it to myself, right? I'm holding on to these things or I'm responsible. It's called an internal locus of control. It's my fault. I'm doing it to myself. I can work my way through it. We're programmed and conditioned like in all cultures, all societies by virtue of it being a society, even tribal societies in Africa to have an external locus of control. So you actually have to learn the internal locus. You're born and conditioned with an external locus. What extremism does is it first validates you are being held back. And then once you're validated believing that, which is something that's feeding your echo chamber already, hmm. once they validate that, then the next thing they get to do is contextualize what the villain is. And then when they can contextualize what the villain is, then you become part of a community that's fighting the same villain. That's how you take somebody who's like, a, like you've heard these stories about these beautiful children and these kind people who turn into atrocious criminals. How does that happen? It happens because every beautiful child still feels a locus of external control. And they, they struggle with it and they deal with it and, they, and it's a challenge to them and they're never shown how to, how to accept that that external factor is actually internally derived. So it's, it's a sad, sad thing, but it becomes the foundation for how extremists create radicals through this radicalization process. It's also the process by which foreign intelligence officers or, or field intelligence officers learn to collect secrets from highly placed military and government assets around the world because they've especially think about it think about any senior government or senior military person guess what they've never given up an external locus of control they work for somebody else they always have a boss they always are seeking someone's approval they're always mm. seeking someone's authority why are they trustworthy to have a secret at all because something externally gave them permission to have top secret security clearance how crazy is that, man? That's wild. Somebody else is going to be trusted with a secret that you're not trusted with. Why? Because some external entity said that they're trustworthy and didn't say that you were. That has nothing to do with your ability to keep a secret. But that's how the world is. That's how we're conditioned by a society that has to maintain maximum efficiency for a diverse crowd. Wow. My mind's been blown this whole time. I love when you brought up tribalism. Because if you think about what tribalism is, by definition, it requires otherism. Mm. Without enemy, there's no tribal. And likewise, you're alluding to the undercurrent of defining common enemy. Because by defining common enemy, what's common to you, you have to find a community to fight the common enemy. Right. Exactly right. And that common enemy element is so critical to the efficiency of a tribe, the efficiency of a society. In many ways, I debate that the reason that we have such polarized opinions in the United States right now is because we have not had a common enemy for many decades. Wow. As soon as we have a common enemy, we will unite around that common enemy. And to, to get into geopolitics just briefly, the reason that we see this increasing tension between China and the United States is because China has been a, has been a student watching us grow. Since 1949, since their communist revolution, they've watched 
how the United States executes their influence around the world. China's been mimicking us. The 20 years that we were engaged in a war on terrorism, China wasn't engaged in that war on terrorism. They didn't spend any time, any money, any training. That was us. But what they did get to do was watch us, learn from us, see how it is that we make all of Europe dependent on us, Latin America is dependent on us, the world trusts and relies on us for all high-tech equipment and innovation. They've been watching, stealing, and learning how to do it themselves. And the reason that we have conflict with them right now is because they're trying to do it themselves and we see it as a threat to our dominance. Mm. The whole reason that, that this is even like relevant is because of that idea of tribalism, right? Like the Chinese don't want to be part of a world where they're dependent on us. So they're breaking away, even though in World War II, they were one of our closest allies. I don't really watch the news. I'm a formerly a policymaker for six years. I got jaded. I left the world. But what I do know is China has been aggressively acquiring land in Africa. Yep. And their dominance has been established in Africa. You can see the insidious aspects of what they're doing and the similarities and the parallels between what U.S. used to do. Yes. And what the U.S. still does, right? We call it insidious because we're talking about a common enemy. Hmm. China understands that if they take a step too far, they're going to accidentally become the common enemy that unites the United States. So their job is to push the border of geopolitical tensions just far enough that we remain divided without uniting around that common threat, without losing their ability to counter us as a a socioeconomic or economic powerhouse. It's a dance that they're doing extremely well. And it speaks to how much they've learned watching us over the last 20 years. Them them insidiously acquiring land in in Africa is no different than how we insidiously got land in Central America or how the Russians have have gained influence, right? The the way that they leverage humanitarian support is the same way we leverage humanitarian support, right? The way that they build trading blocks is the same way that we built trading blocks. The only difference is we did it 20 years ago and they started to, or we did it 40 years ago. They started it 15 years ago. But just like any student learns faster than the teacher, that's why we've seen this incredible rise of a new hegemony. That's wild about the fact that yes, student does learn faster, but also once again, the common enemy. Like even like I had a social linguist on uh, years ago on the podcast, and he talks about the usage of metaphors, like the linguistic changes based on social implications. So even my Un, like subconscious usage of insidious already, as you said, implies that I've also, yes, I'm a veteran, right? But still, I, I've already been subscribed to this common enemy trope without knowing. And I have highly <laughs> cultivated self-actualization. Exactly. It's been years. We're all trapped, right? It's just, it's one of those things where that's why, that's why I love having conversations like this with people like you, because we're not in our echo chamber, we are in two different chambers and we're calling across a wall that we can break down together, right? That's what's so powerful about medians like podcasts. Not only do we get to break down walls for the people listening, we get to break down walls between the people talking to each other on the mic. So speaking of breaking the fourth dimension, Andrew, like do you have a list of mental models or thought exercises that you use to train your mind? And I'd love to dive into one or two specifically. There are a lot of mental models that we use at the agency. And there's a number of them that I still practice to this day. And the first big mental model that we have is the idea of perception versus perspective. Mm. And 
perception and perspective are often, those are words that are often used interchangeably, but they mean two very different things. Perception has everything to do with how you view the world around you through your own five senses. What you see, what you hear, what you taste. And I, my stepdad used to say, perception is everything. Perception is just how you see it. It's subjective based on you. If you only have one eye or if you're colorblind, your perception is that the world is actually black and white, right? Perspective is when you use objective, measurable facts to gain a larger point of view, right? So my perception of you is not necessarily as accurate as what I would learn about you or determine about you if I gained a larger perspective. Perfect example, when you're a guest on a, on a podcast, perceptions often rule because guests show up with no idea about the podcast they're about to be on. Mm. And they just come in and they're like, whatever, let's, let's, let's <laughs> talk about me because I'm, I'm the guest. Uh -huh. I try never to do that. I try to always gain perspective by studying the podcast itself. What does it talk about? Who's the audience that they talk to? What are the contents? Like, what's the hard hitting content? What does it look like on YouTube? What does it look like on Apple podcast reviews? What does it look like on Spotify podcast reviews? Like, it only takes 15 or 20 minutes and you gain this super powerful perspective that is so much more encompassing than your own individual perception. Mm. The same thing is true with us in individual relationships. The person that you meet on the street is so much more complicated and deep than what you think they are in your first conversation. Same thing is true for everyone you hire, everyone you work with, every client, every product that you try to sell. It's just, it's infinitely applicable, this mental model of understanding and challenging your perception to gain a better perspective. So many of us, because as you said, everyone is selfish to a certain degree and we accept what's useful to us. So it's easier to reject what's not aligned with our beliefs. Full circle into how we started this conversation. The through line, to use your word, like the through line in all of that is people are seeing things through their own point of view, mm. which is their own perception. And they're, and they're aligning themselves in a tribe of other people who are also seeing the same concept and the same conflict through their own perception. So you have these groups of people that we call a group that are actually individuals just count doubling down on their own individual point of view. And they don't realize that the person next to them doesn't agree with them. The other person just thinks the same way as them. And then you end up having this phenomenon of in-group bias where we're all doing, we're surrounding ourselves with people who think and act like us. Not because we actually know or understand anything about the other person. They just think and act like us. And once we put ourselves into those pens, hmm. we're incredibly malleable by media, by advertisers, by marketers, because you've self-selected into a bucket of people who are trapped in your own perception. Yeah, identifying selection bias or self-selection bias is the first step of scientific inquiry method. But of course, for everyday folks, they don't do that, right? I have a question about cognitive dissonance, mm. right? So dissonance simply put is you're holding two differing ideas in conflict, but based on your comfort with that difference, you usually pick a side. And this is all subconscious mostly. A lot of people think the smarter you are, the higher intellect point that you have, the less dissonance you have. That's actually a fallacy. The smarter you are, air quotes, because intelligence can be measured very differently. The higher the intellect that you have, colloquially speaking, the deeper the dissonance. Because your ability to rationalize and contextualize actually increases by tenfold based on your processing power. 
That's how I define intelligence, your ability to process information. So from your experience, interpersonally, relationally, or through your CIA training, like, have you observed that? Absolutely. It's totally true. And what I found is that it's trainable, right? People can expand their smartness or their intelligence, right? They can learn. It's, a, it's again, going back to the fact that the brain is also a muscle. Mm. Cognitive dissonance is how you exercise that muscle. So you create new neural pathways, you create new wrinkles, you create new pink matter in your brain when you let yourself become open to challenging your own ideas and challenging your own beliefs. And what's really fascinating is that the more people are able to swim in that dissonance mm. and while they swim in the dissonance, they don't quickly land on one side or the other. So that means they remain mm. in that dissonance. It's fascinating to watch how effective those people are because by virtue of being comfortable in this pool of two different ideas, they get the perspective of both ideas. And at any given time, one idea might be more practical than the other idea. So they have an opportunity to actually capitalize on both ideas in a timely manner because they're actively undecided about a final decision, a final idea. It's wild because the average layperson sees that person as like a hypocrite or sees that person as right or wrong, not realizing they, they never landed on a decision. They're literally making an assessment in a moment. And we're multidimensional. And I think Joe Rogan comes to my mind where people attack him because like, oh, you switch your stances all the time. You're always incongruent. You're conflicting with what you said. And he's like, whoa, I don't subscribe to anything I said. Right. And I think he lives in that dissonance. Yep. And I want to ask you in terms of some of your own incongruences that you felt emotionally, relationally, morally, mm. what are some of the incongruences or dissonance you used to uphold, but no more? So I used to believe that community was a lot more important than I think it really is now. Mm. I used to think that community was like something that had to be large. Like you had to belong to a church or a neighborhood association or a professional association. That community was, was something that had to be large and it had to be intimate and it had to be two-way. I think I opened myself, interestingly enough, it was a pastor who actually opened my eyes to this and gave me the example of how Jesus himself only had 12 disciples. Mm. So how big was Jesus's largest intimate community? 12. And that was its maximum, right? At the end of his life. So it was really interesting to hear a pastor share that insight because it completely transformed my idea of community. Now, don't get me wrong. This is the same pastor who stood on a stage and said, you all need the community of the church. And we have youth groups and we have marriage groups and we have all this other stuff and get yourself into groups. It's against the best interest of the church to have small groups. It's in the best interest of the church to have large groups because then they get a large church and they have a larger donor race. And even just seeing how the pastor shared one idea with me that he didn't put into practical application on the stage, helped me to understand that even, even your religious leaders are just playing a show. It's all an act, right? It's an act because practically speaking, they know what they want to do to help their audience, but they can't tell the audience the truth to get the audience to do what they need to do for themselves. That's one area where cognitive dissonance is, has absolutely just transformed me because now I believe that my community, my group can be as small as one other person. I sense a theme of universal threats, universal truth. The fact that pastor talks about the importance or that Jesus had 12 disciples while preaching about having a large community 
And if you really know the Bible and Christianity, it is about the people, the Holy Trinity, right? It's about the communal aspects. So what are, if any, since we talked about subjective truth, practical truth, and objective truth, have you noticed any universal truth in the past or even currently? Absolutely. And, and there's not many. There's probably, in my experience, there's less than a handful, right? Mm-hmm. But the one that jumps to mind that's that to me is absolutely universal and absolutely unquestionable, at least in my experience, is that human beings need connection mm. with other human beings. It's a desire of every single human being. Does that make it their, their biggest desire? No. Does it make it their, their you know, most important desire? No. But it is absolutely universally a truth that human beings desire connection. What you can do with that when you understand that to be true is incredible because By simply understanding that that universal truth is true, it immediately highlights the vulnerability in every person Mm -hmm. out there who says that they're happy being alone because they're not. All the lone wolves out there, all the people who are like, I'm happy by myself. No, you're not. You might be happy being alone, but you are not happy being lonely. Two completely different things. So for me, that's the strongest absolute truth. Human beings desire connection on such a deep level that if you can give that to them, you will be able to shed, just absolutely blow through public life, private life, and jump into secret life if you can give them the kind of connection they're looking for. You're an amazing conversationist and you make my job easier because <laughs> you're literally highlighting mental health as a through line. And that is a fact, Mm. attachment theory, infancy, caregiver, and so on. And also lone wolf, it's just a fun fact. I learned this a while ago where lone wolf is a mythology. It's a fallacy because the concept of lone wolf was captured by an American photographer back in the days because they saw a snapshot of a wolf, alpha wolf, being by itself, but he didn't get all the wolf pack behind it. Wolf is a group animal. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say that out there, lone wolf is not a thing. Yeah, it's not a thing. You're exactly right. Even like, think about Asian culture. You've heard of the Ronin warrior, yep. right? Yep. What is a Ronin? A Ronin is a samurai without a master. That doesn't mean a Ronin is happy mm. because what does a Ronin want? They want a group. So even when you read about groups of Ronin, why the hell would Ronins connect in groups? Because they're still craving that connection. The most talented, dangerous, deadly warrior you know, in Japan, can't handle life alone. They can't handle life without connection. Even though they carry a cool name and a sharp sword, they still need connection. Man, I think this is a segue uh, into your family because mm. I definitely want to highlight because you called yourself a proud husband and father, right? Not in respective orders, but like, uh, can you make some through lines between that? Because I see so many interesting connections between your preparedness, your calculator risk, your ability to navigate, the change of your landscape and so on. CIA absolutely prepared me for parenthood and being a spouse, without a doubt, because it taught me so much about human nature. It taught me so much about how people think. It taught me so much about human motivations. However, my wife was also trained by CIA. My wife is another former covert CIA intelligence officer, just like me. We had the same training. It's like marriage counseling before marriage counseling, like, like the, the mm. pre-counseling that Catholics go through, only it was training before we even, even knew each other, mm. right? There's an element of that that's liberating because I know that my wife knows tactically, operationally, and academically all the same things that I know. So I can't try to lie to her. 
she can't try to lie to me when we see each other lying, not because not all lies are intentional. Sometimes lies are like unintentional. We can still call each other out on behaviors and whatever else, right? So, so CIA prepared me for marriage in many ways because they prepared my wife for marriage also. And we got to skip over so much of what other people learn through years of conflict and frustration and, and friction. So that was huge. CIA prepared me to have a deep, meaningful, connected relationship with a common vocabulary that's very advanced and operational with my life partner. And that's incredibly, incredibly valuable to us. And then it also prepared me for life with children because children are just less developed versions of adults. So if you know how to handle an adult, you can basically backtrack to how to handle a child. Not to mention the fact that one of the things CIA taught us to do was always prepare for your target. Mm. So before we had children, we were reading books about how to raise children. This is the mistake that so many parents make. They wait until they have children and they have a problem with their children before they start reading about how to raise children. You should start reading about how to raise children the day that you stop wearing any kind of protection. Mm. That's when you should start learning about how children work because that's how you're going to be prepared when you actually have them. You have to stay ahead of the curve in order to beat the curve, right? Any race car driver will tell you that. So CIA training helped me do both, but nothing has shaped my understanding of humankind like being a father. Hmm. Because when I found out that my son was coming, the day that my wife told me that we were pregnant, everything changed. My whole idea of what was important, what wasn't important, what was a priority, what's not a priority, what my true value was as a human being, it all changed in a moment. Because, I mean, I'll never forget the day, man. I was, my wife and I were on a field assignment abroad together operating with CIA. She came out of the bathroom in tears with a positive pregnancy test. And I had no idea that she was even taking the test, right? And then in tears, she was like, I'm pregnant. I've taken the test three times. It keeps telling me I'm pregnant. And then this is my wife, just so you know. <laughs> she looks at me and she says, but there could be, it could be a false positive in the box. So will you please pee on one of these? So she actually wanted me to like independently validate the box was valid. Anyways, I'll never forget it because we like we were on, on we were on an op, man. And she came out in tears, not because she was sad to be a mom, but because she was like, How am I going to bring a child into this world that we're in? Mm. And it struck me right away because when she said that, I was ecstatic. I was so happy. And it was such a, a dissonant moment. She is afraid and scared and crying. Mm. And I am, I am having what is quite possibly the happiest moment of my life. As she tells me that we have a baby, that we have created a child, right? And it was such a powerful moment and everything just shifted. It was another one of those reality break moments. And I was like, wow. It's been awesome to do what we've done. It's going to be even more awesome to do what we're going to do next. And that's why being a parent drove me to leave CIA. Being a parent drove me to create a business. Being a parent drove me to make the decisions about the business that I make. Everything for me now is about being a parent because what your children give you is an opportunity to relive your whole life again. You get to do for them the things that you wish people did for you. You get to see your own parents in you as you parent your kids. It's this incredible opportunity to go to school about yourself with somebody who loves you with no conditions. Like the way a child loves you is unlike anything you've ever seen before. Hmm. And, and there was no training at CIA that could prepare me for that. Even in my marriage, 
I still had the perception that the world revolved around me. Hmm. Once you have children, you realize everything about what I'm doing is for them. I am second to them, which gives you an amazing ability to understand your own parents when they first saw you and understand the struggles they had and why they were so flawed and all the mistakes they made because they were trying to do what they thought was best, just wasn't what you wanted them to do, which means everything I'm doing is also not what they want me to do. Hmm. It's just that it's an interesting way of looking at all of life and realizing we're all just people. We're flawed and we're striving to do better and we're striving to give opportunities that we didn't get. And if that isn't unfair, then I don't know what is. Such a beautiful way to close this out because I intentionally chose not to ask too many family questions. Shout out to you, Rena. Thanks for the connections. She did an exceptional job interviewing you specific about familyhood and fatherhood. So I do want to redirect listeners to check out her episode with Andrew. But also full circle, you talked about all of us need to take off our parents off the pedestal. Because all adults and parents are older children having kids for the first time. And I never made this connection until just now where having kids in a way is the most powerful school of life. Yeah. Birth and rebirth, the journey, the iterations. And a lot of parents gain more profound empathy for their parents, especially immigrant parents, dealing with tiger parents, other barriers and so on. But I think that's a, such a beautiful way because the way you ended it, none of us are perfect. It's the imperfections makes us humans, but lies in that there's tremendous opportunity if you want to embrace the, the uncomfortable truth and everything you talked about. Our imperfections are what give us fertile ground to connect. Mm. We don't connect over our strengths. We don't connect over the things we do well. We connect over our imperfections, right? Every mistake I made with my wife and every mistake you've made with your fiance, when we share those errors with each other, it brings us closer together. It gives us the connection we desire. When I just talk about how awesome I am in bed and you're like, oh, I'm <laughs> awesome in bed too. We're like, oh, high five. There's no connection though. It's when we say like, I, I made my wife cry the other day. And you're like, oh dude, I hate it when I make my wife cry. It makes mm. me feel like such a scumbag. Mm. And boom, like we're in it. We're deep in it together. We're connected. That's what we desire as human beings. Um, this is where I roll out the metaphorical red carpet for you. Where can people connect with you and just check you out and just for your ability to teach them to be everyday spy? Absolutely. If you want to find me, uh, the best place to find me is online at my homepage, everydayspy.com. That's the place to start. Any question you have is going to be answered there. If you want to understand more of my process and how I implement my process, it's all there. So go to everydayspy.com, mobile device or desktop, whatever you want. If, you are the if you're a fan of social media, you'll find me on all platforms at Everyday Spy. That's the handle everywhere is at Everyday Spy. And if you are a podcast consumer and this is how you like to learn through video or audio content, look for the Everyday Spy podcast on YouTube and on every place that podcasts are published. Yeah, he has two YouTube channels. Check out his podcast one that he just launched. But appreciate your time, your effort, and your energy. My pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me and giving me a chance to learn more about myself and more about what I have learned practically and validated a lot of what CIA never validated for me. And as always, hope to see you again in next week's train of Discover More. And I hope you choose curiosity over fear. Thank you for listening.